All right, everybody. Thank you all for coming in today to the Unusual Whales housing space. We're going to explore a lot of topics today. First, I want to say to all of our wonderful panelists here today, if you have anything to add, feel free to chime in. The only request that I have is that we leave mics off when other people are speaking, just to avoid any feedback, echo, anything like that. With that said, I'm going to jump right into some intros. Folks, if you got anything to plug after I call your name here on the panel, feel free to plug it. We'll jump right in here. So starting off, we've got Randy Woodward, a bond investor for 30 years, was working at Bloomberg from 1988 to 95. He's a newcomer to our unusual whale spaces and a great follower for all things macro. Welcome, Randy. How are you doing? Very nice of you. Thanks for being here, man. Happy to get Next, we've got the real estate god, an avid Twitter user. The real estate god works on explaining the real estate market opportunities in both commercial and retail and is a first-time joiner of the Unusual Whale Spaces as well. Well, good to be here. Next, George Noble, a man who needs no introduction, but will give him one anyway. George ran the top performing Fidelity Overseas Fund, worked with Peter Lynch and hosts Great Spaces himself. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate your spaces. Hey, I appreciate having you here, man. Next, we got Ben Hunt, a friend of the Unusual Whales community. Ben Hunt is the founder of Epsilon Theory, which, among many things, hosts wonderful newsletters you should already be subscribed to. Seriously. Welcome back, Ben. How are you doing? Thanks. I appreciate the plug. Good to be back. How you, Ben? Up next, we've got the last bear standing himself, also a friend of the Unusual Whale Spaces. Last bear is an expert on numerous things, and he also has an incredible newsletter that details the subtleties often forgotten in macro economy. If you're not, go subscribe to that. Welcome back, last bear standing. Thanks. Thanks for having me. These are always really fun to do. And yeah, I have a uh, sub stack, so if anyone likes what I have to say here, you can follow me. Absolutely do that, folks. Lots of good information there, always. Next, we've got Joey Politano. Joey's an active friend of the spaces. Love having him here as well. Also a friend of avoiding fire alarms. Eh? Got a great newsletter as well, a must-read dealing with all things macro. Check out his CPI one from previous publications. And we're honored to have you again here, Joey. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be back on. It's a wonderful day here in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm glad to be spending it with you guys. Hey, glad to hear it, man. I'm excited to get this thing going. So why don't we? Jumping right in, I want to paint a bit of a picture off the bat here before we kick some questions to the panelists. Mortgage rates are at their highest in 22 years, and there's a collapse in affordability for new home buyers. There are also whiffs of price decreases around the entire globe, while the USD and Treasury yields are breaking new ground. To the panel... What is going on in U.S. home prices, and are we in for a crash? Let's start with Randy here. All right. Hate to go first, but I'll try. So a little background on me. Um, I, I was a programmer and then sales at Bloomberg in 88 to 95, and that's when Bloomberg was in the process of exploding. I think they had five or 6,000 terminals when I started, and when I they now have 350,000. So... I was there at a really unique time. 
And I got to see, you know, I don't know how many on people on here have Bloomberg. I'm sure many of you do. But it's a it's a deep look into the bond. Well, lots of worlds, lots of financial worlds, but particularly bonds, particularly when it comes to for this conversation, mortgages. And I programmed in those areas. So it forced me to have a deep understanding of the securitization of mortgages. And then I got into sales, which saw, you know, I was in all the Wall Street main trading floors and then all around the country. So quite honestly, then going around the country, I got to see how people got constantly screwed by mortgages, whether it be mortgages or CMOs or arms or anything like that. And so I left in 95 and started selling bonds and I cover primarily banks and credit unions. So I, I get to see a lot. I talk to, you know, I got clients, banks and credit unions, coast to coast. And so how I'll start, is pretty simple. Lending's falling off a cliff. Okay. Originations, as you can expect, is just absolutely dying. And I just found out this morning that, let's see, 95% of all 15-year loans are under 4%. And 75% of all 30-year mortgage loans are now under 4%. And the only reason that is not higher is because all the new production is 30-year. Um, but every single one of my clients are like, yeah, you know, residential lending is falling off a cliff. And you know, if they aren't lending, they're not buying. And that's what we're starting to see in the numbers that we got today. So I'll leave it there for right now if you have any questions on that. Does anyone have anything to add to what Randy said? Well, I can go. I, I mean, uh, maybe this is a good you know, starting point for, for what I wanted to talk about, uh, which, like Andy, Randy, is um, I think focused more on market world than real world. I mean, I, I don't know that I have any great insights to what's happening in real world, but I, I think that what's happening in market world around mortgages is um, it's pretty stunning. And what I mean by that is that right now, today, a jumbo mortgage has a lower interest rate than a conforming mortgage. And I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't know that was possible, right? But, but, but it is possible, and it's happening right now. So let me, let me just say that again, right? So a, a, a jumbo mortgage has a lower average interest rate nationally than a conforming mortgage that you can put to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. So can I uh, add that, some, can I tell you can I tell you why that's happening? This is Randy. Oh yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> I know why mind. it's happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, well, then, I, I think it goes me, with what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can see just on my. I apologize for uh, interrupting, but it is a fascinating thing, right? That that's not you know. I'm sure many of you are probably my age. And I'm 55, but that just wasn't the case for so long. Oh, but it's it never now. been the case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the problem, the issue you have now is that. You know, there's a lot more jumbo lending because home prices have gone up so much. My accounts are holding a lot more jumbo loans because That's there's right. really nowhere to go. And what I've been hearing the last month is Fannie and Freddie, they're just not paying. The, the, well, so, well, that's enough, what I wanted to know. focus on, Randy. That's exactly right. I wanted to yeah. focus on that because you're right about so a lot of originators, a lot of banks, right? They keep the jumbo loans, frankly, on their books. Right, they don't securitize them. Um, the, but if you've got a conforming loan, right, you lay that off onto Fannie and Freddie, and that they really have to securitize it. 
So I, what's, what's happening today is that there are no buyers, <laughs> right, for agency paper, for Fannie and Freddie securitizations, right? On, on the contrary, you've got people selling agency paper as much as they can, right? So that's a, that's a market consequence. I mean, I mean, it makes total sense, right? I mean, you know, who – and it goes to the point of the, – the, the other point I wanted to make, which is the spread we've got today between mortgage rates – and 10-year U.S. Treasuries is, you know, close to – well, we, we had a really big spread in Q4 of 2018, you know, the last time that the Fed tried to uh, normalize interest rates. And before that, you've got to go back to the great financial crisis to find a spread between, um, you know, 30-year fixed mortgages and uh, 10-year interest rates to the degree we've got today. So what's but what's different from both of those times before is that we've got a situation where <laughs> I think you've got basically a buyer strike on agency paper, and yet you've got Fannie and Freddie who still have to price their securities because they've got to securitize the stuff they've got. I I hope that's clear for people. I but it, but it was really striking today uh, when I was looking into this. Because this spread between jumbo and conforming mortgages, I, I mean, I just assumed it was, you know, a spread where conforming was lower than jumbo. It's not the case. One more point I'll put on this, which is that the Fed has got a measure they call uh, national financial conditions, right, where they're trying to track over time how tight or how loose financial conditions are in the United States. By far, <laughs> the most negative contributor to financial conditions in the current Fed readings here is this jumbo to conforming spread. It's, it, it's, it's the largest contributor in how the Fed measures national financial conditions to a tightening of credit in the United States. So something really screwy is going on with agency paper and the securitization of, of conforming mortgages. And I think that for me is at least as impactful, right, than whatever is happening with average house prices and transactions and originations and the like. So I'd, I want to put that thread out there that what's happening in the mortgage market is really screwed up right now. So I do want to talk a little bit about spreads a little bit later in the space, but I, I did I did hear a really great point you made there, Ben. You just brought up regarding real versus markets. You said that in the past, in this situation, is the opposite of 2008. And you've also said that cash-up mortgage refis and HELOCs are going to explode. I'd like to bring real estate God up here quick to ask what are you seeing in the real market compared to the market, as Ben was saying, treasury markets aside? What I was saying is I'm, I'm on the uh, equity side um, and on the commercial side. So I don't see the lending side as much. Where I really see the lending side is when I'm going to get a loan. Um, so I guess from my perspective on the commercial side, transactions have really slowed. Up, and that uh, mainly just due to the fact that the, the bid-ass spread is so wide. Um, so that's what I'm seeing. It's, it's more of a stalemate uh, in terms of kind of transactions overall. Um, and it's really something that most likely won't be resolved. So that's really what I see. I mean, 
in terms of the the residential myself and and what I think is going to happen, I think almost certainly you're going to see price decreases across the board. Um, really, the question is the magnitude of the price decreases um, and how many people they affect uh, and how many forced sellers there are and how I look at it. Um, so I don't really have the exact lending perspective that, that you guys are talking about. But from an equity perspective, it's it's more and commercial perspective, it's, it's more of a stalemate than anything else. Um, there aren't the only people who are really in danger on, on the commercial side of the people who took floating rate bridge debt um, in late. So real estate, God, do you see this as a unique market similar? I don't think it's anywhere near 2008. Um, I think everyone almost wants it to be 2008. And I think from the, you look at the fundamentals, I'd say the fundamentals are, are pretty good. Um, so I, I think it kind of needs to be seen through a different lens than 08. I think there will certainly be price decreases across the board, I said. Um, but the magnitude is really what we need to think about here. Um, and I think a lot of people are just assuming it's going to be 08 again when I think it's more than likely that it's it's not a type event. Um, and just because there's another crash possibly coming uh, does not mean it has to mirror that in any way. Um, and the other thing I would think about too is a lot of the pricing quotes that they'll kind of take, they'll be like, okay, so prices have decreased X amount since, uh, I don't know, let's call it summer 2022. Uh, yeah, they have, but they also ran up 20% right before then. So in a, in a sense, you're right back to even in a lot of these scenarios. Uh, so really the people who get hit are the people who, who, who bought just then, which is, is really a low percentage of people. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I do think there's, there's going to be a significant price decreases, especially in a lot of the growth markets. Um, I'm just not sure that's going to affect as many people as people think. And I think really the main driver of a lot of these things is forced selling. Um, and in order for that to happen, I think a lot of people need to become unemployed, which hasn't really happened yet. So I think that's kind of the trigger that that could be, if there was to be a trigger of a really, really significant event, that's what I would think it would be. Um, just really mass unemployment, forcing sales of these, these homes that people bought late. But until we see that, um, I'm not convinced it's going to be anywhere near 08. Although, like I said, I do think there's really good points. Thank you much. So I want to kind of kick this over to a little bit more. So I'm going to move over to George on this one. Michael Contro has said, I remember 2007 and 2008 made many mistakes, quote unquote, due to the 14 years less experience acknowledged that he, quote, does not want to repeat. One mistake was thinking that bubbles built up over many years can be solved by a rate cut, a pivot, or not allowing investors to short stocks. And here we are again, end quote. Do we think we're following that mistake again in real estate? I'd love to hear your thoughts here, George, given your equities focus. Thanks. So, listen, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. And this is different from 2008. In some respects, it's better. In some respects, it's worse. I look at housing through the lens of just asset prices generally. I don't have any specific knowledge on housing per se. Although, um, I'm not here to plug my space, but for those of you that do follow me, we had Ivy Zellman uh, speaking about three months ago, and she was very prescient in her observations. I'll get to housing in particular. Um, specifically, um, we've had an incredible bubble in so many assets. Uh, we suppressed the cost of capital um, for years, and it allowed enormous buildup of uh, debt and debt-fueled buying of, of a lot of assets, housing being one of them. 
And now what's happening is we're just normalizing the cost of capital. Imagine you have a beach ball that you're holding beneath the water. The Fed's pressing rates through QE. And now we let go. At a time when inflation is running hot, it may have peaked. That's not the issue. The issue is, you look at where rates are, and you look where inflation is. And I'm not at all interested in the U.S. bond market. In fact, I'm slightly short, believe it or not. So you're seeing a normalization of the cost of capital, which is resulting in a huge margin call. It's going to result in big force selling equities, bonds, commodities, collectibles, baseball cards, real estate. For those of you that aren't familiar with Stein's law, Herb Stein, I think he was uh, still around, Stein's law, that which can't go on won't go on. So the statistics that were being referenced earlier about affordability, I'm very familiar with those. The fact of the matter is, yeah, okay, if you're in your house and you don't have to move, you're okay. But price is always set at the margin. It's the marginal buyer and seller. And you look at, you know, how much the average payment's gone up for the average homeowner. It's a freaking disaster. So I expect you're going to see a very material decline in prices. Further exacerbated by, um, as Ivy pointed out, this is what's different. The amount of hidden supply in the market, the 24% of transactions in the first half of this year involve non-primary buyers, whether it's Airbnb or it's build to rent or it's uh, institutional buyers of homes. Those are not primary owners. And they're financial buyers. And so when the numbers go the wrong way, as they are now, that potentially represents a form of hidden supply, which dwarfs anything we've ever seen before. So, yes, we don't have the excesses in mortgage finance, but that's looking in the wrong place. The fact that the financialization of uh, the housing stock uh, and the attendant accumulation of debt that goes along with that, and also the much better information now that you can get from the internet. Price transmission occurs much more quickly. She predicted earlier this summer that we're going to be surprised how quickly the market comes unstuck. It's exactly what's happened. So how far the market goes down, don't know. Um, housing is a very regional market, but I'm very negative on housing. In the same way, I'm pretty much negative across the board vis-a-vis all uh, risk assets. Thank you. Thank you, man. Really good points there. So I want to touch a little on something that was brought up lightly a little bit ago here. So I'm going to go to Joey and Last Bear for this one. Morgan Stanley has said that this is not 2007 to 2008 because people are not forced to sell or foreclose. They believed the market would stagnate, especially since most people are in fixed rate loans. What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts, Joey, first, given your recent look at Metro price housing across the U.S. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for handing it over to me. I think um, the dynamics are really interesting and very critically different from 2008. The big one being, of course, that uh, housing owners, especially owner occupiers on aggregate are less levered, you know, so the, the value of the mortgage compared to the value of the house is uh, lower. A lot of that has to deal with the fact that, you know, you had a big credit crunch post 2008 in housing. And so a lot of the buyers, or excuse me, a lot of the owners now, people who, like you said, have fixed rate mortgages, 
they've been paying them off for a long period of time, around 40% of U.S. homeowners don't have a mortgage. They've fully paid the thing off, and that's mostly you know, older people. And so the transmission of rate hikes to you know, the financial well-being of homeowners is a little different. There was a great paper by um, a Fed economist at the Board of Governors on you know, the monetary policy transmission for rents and housing prices. The idea being like, obviously inflation's a really big problem right now. The reason why rates are going up is because the Fed's trying to control inflation. How does the Fed control inflation? Primarily by lowering people's incomes, their spending ability, and how that filters through to the really cyclical components, which is mostly housing. Uh, and what this paper said was basically when you raise rates, the first thing that happens is that homeownership becomes less affordable. You know, people obviously can't get the same, you know, amount of house in terms of pricing at a higher mortgage rate for the same monthly payment. So either home prices have to come down or what happens usually first is that starts, housing starts fall. And that's what we've seen over the last, you know, few uh, months is the data from the census showing that starts which were running way ahead of completions since the start of the pandemic you know that's supply chain issues you have a record number of homes under construction so starts for single family homes were really high now they're below completions because of that rapid rise in mortgage rates that rapid change in affordability um, and that's you know also not the dynamic that we saw in 2008 where you have these massive increases in mortgage rates that are intentional byproduct of what the fed is doing to try to control Thank you, Joey. Last spare, I'd love to get your excuse me. I'd love to get your thoughts here as well on what everyone else is saying. We've heard two different sides: one that the market will stagnate or slightly go down, or it will be a huge decline. Love your thoughts here, and then we'll open this up to the panel after there. Yeah, I think the the point that I would raise, I, I agree with what a lot of folks have already said on on the call, but I think just a, a point to maybe to add on for context is that the housing market is obviously different than. You know, the stock market or, or bond markets in the sense of how that market construct works. It's obviously not nearly as liquid of a market. Things take longer um, to play out. It takes you know, months to, to close on a single transaction, whereas you can buy millions of dollars of stock um, in, in a second. Um, and you can get margin called on, on you know, a million dollars of stock in a second as well and have your, your uh, stock liquidated. Whereas you know, the, the process of delinquencies and foreclosures and whatever is, is much more drawn out. There's a lot more protections involved and, and whatnot. And as I think Joey just mentioned, like delinquency rates now are as, as low as we've seen um, going back for, for some time. And really, we haven't seen any sort of uptick from what I've seen in terms of, uh, you know, borrowers having troubles with, with their mortgage payments, which obviously partially has to do with the fact that many of those obligations are fixed and whatnot. But uh, the point that, uh, that I'm making around the markets is just that, um, you know, you could see uh, the, the S&P 500 fall 10% in a day in sort of, you know, a, a crash type scenario because of the, the construct of that market. Whereas um, real estate, I think just naturally is a little bit slower to evolve. So, you know, in the, in the last cycle, housing prices, you know, increase from 2003 to 2006, then sort of plateaued. Um, and then we're sort of in a, a, depending on where you are in the market, was a slow or fast decline that didn't bottom out for another four or five years um, from the peak, whereas, you know, the stock market bottomed in 2009, early 2009. Um, so 
I think it's a longer cycle. It's a lot less liquid of a market. And so the market dynamics, I think you, you need to differentiate um, between other sort of more liquid financial assets. And then the other point that I would make on, on market structure is just that it's a lot easier to invest in like, you know, the, the S&P 500, where you can take a very small percentage of equity across a bunch of different companies that's, you know, easily packaged and bought and sold. Whereas for housing, um, you know, I think it's a lot more, it is a lot more regional, especially if you're on this call and you're thinking about, you know, is this a good time to buy or sell a house? I think, you know, location obviously matters. And there's definitely different dynamics playing out throughout throughout the country. If you look at sort of the Mountain West, which was probably a huge beneficiary of sort of the COVID work from home, you know, people leaving San Francisco to go and, and live in Utah for a year, those markets, you already see them just, you know, something close to a collapse, if, if not a collapse. Um, whereas other markets, even ones that might seem like bubbly type markets like Miami so far, you haven't seen the level of, um, you know, in, uh, price declines and, and buyers decline, at least not yet. So I just draw those distinctions um, because I think they're important versus other financial markets. Thank you much, Les Bear. So before I kick off the new topic, does anybody have anything they want to say based on what any other speakers have said or elaborate upon or disagree with? Well, I'll, I'll throw two comments in there. This is Randy. Um, real quick. So George, you know, made an important thing about, you know, history rhymes, right? And I keep seeing on Twitter, oh, it's not like 08. It's not like 08. It's not, it doesn't have to be like 08, okay? It, when we were in 08, it had never happened like that before either. So it's something different every time. And all I know in the history of doing this for 30 some years is that there's risk somewhere. There's risk that nobody knows about and it's going to come out. I mean, and we just don't know where, but it has to be there because that's the human behavior is I got to take that risk because I can make more money the more risk I take. And the other thing, real comment, and this is sort of, ben, you know, I think this is in our area, you know, Ben said there's a buyer strike. Well, I'd like to kind of explain that just a little bit. It isn't so much a strike as in it, it just can't happen. So what you had, I think it's really important to understand because this is what the Fed did. Back in March of 18, 2020, when we're getting into this pandemic and something's happening. And, and again, I still don't think we know, but good collateral is being sold, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. The Fed has to come in to save the day. We don't know who the hell they're saving, but they're saving somebody. So to try to give you guys an idea, you have Fannie 2.5% mortgage uh, bonds okay, that are out there, which means that the average rate for that borrower is probably around 3.5%. Okay? My clients, these bonds are trading at about uh, 102.5%. Okay? By about two weeks later, they're plummeting, and they're in March 19, they are right at par, if not just slightly under par. Now, my bank clients, and this is important to understand, are buying hand over fist, okay? Because they, they recognize this is a great deal. It's a great, you know, given where rates were at the time where they had been. So they're buying as much as they can. Well, the Fed decides, no, we have to fix this market. And, and so what they did, they start buying, right? Huge, both treasuries and mortgages. Mortgages, 10 days later, not even 10 days, Eight days later, those same bonds that my clients are buying at par are now 104 and a half. That's a massive, unprecedented move in mortgage backs. 
And what it then forced, okay, they kept those at those levels, 104, 102, 103, 104. The Fed's buying kept those levels up until, you get it, January of this year when they're finally back to par. But here's what happened. Massive issuance for, for that two, almost two period of time. So all the buyers are being forced to pay these high prices, buy these low, uh, these low coupons at these high prices. Everything's refinancing. Tons of money is coming into the banks because everybody's refinancing, which of course means cash flow on these mortgages. So they're all having to be pushed into these mortgages that let's say hopefully are going to have a five or six year duration. They do that for a year and a half, year and three quarters, and now they do completely the opposite. Now, all that money that went in from my clients is now locked up because now those durations are 10, 11, 12 years. They're not getting any cash flow. So they don't have the money to reinvest. They would love to be buying mortgage-backed securities right now, but they just simply do not have the cash flow. They do not have the money. So the demand, that's going to make a difference. You know, for anybody who gets a mortgage, that's going to get sold to somebody. Well, you know, if those buyers don't have any money... (laughs) Who the hell are you going to sell them to? So it's not so much a strike as in a Fed-induced coma. And so that's just the two things that I wanted to point out that I think are really, really important to understand. I think that's really good comment, things to point Randy. out Thank as well. You. Good Thanks, stuff. Man. And I, I love seeing the discourse between everybody. And I just want to real quick before we move along, comment on how great of speakers you guys all are. Like I, I can't. I can't compliment you guys enough and I can't thank you enough for being here because the delivery of your explanations, all of this is so perfect and I can't thank you enough. So Ben, did you have additional comments there? No, I I just thought that was really helpful. I I mean, just the impact on duration here from these, I mean, that, that's just, it's just astronomical. Right. And, and I, and I completely agree with what Randy is saying. It, It is, it is, it is much better characterized as a, Fed-induced coma, right? Than a buyer strike. It is. It is absolutely a coma. But the reason I'm looking at this, though, guys, is that you know I've been trying to think of ways in which this meteoric increase in rates, where it can have a market impact similar to the market impact that raising rates had on the the long-dated gilts market. Right, because that was, you know, relatively illiquid, and you and the and the natural buyers, which are the pension funds over there, they couldn't buy, and there were there were there were no buyers for those long dated gilts, which is what was the, you know, the 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 immediate crisis that happened over there. So I'm I'm just for a long time now I've been thinking about okay, where is that liquidity crisis? Where can that happen? In the U.S. and it just made, started making me look at the, you know, the, the mortgage market as a, as a potential place for that. Not in the same sort of, I mean, I don't think in the same sort of really um, acute, you know, manifestation that we saw in the U.K. But I'd be really curious to what other people think about what the state of liquidity looks like in some of these MBS markets, because it, it, it feels to me like it's, it's frozen and in, a, in an ice age kind of frozen sort of way. So, I mean, 
I'd love to hear some comments or thoughts about that if anybody has them. I would too. George or Last Bear, do either of you have any comments on what Ben was just saying? I mean, the only the only point that I would add is that, you know, it, it absolutely is a Fed-induced coma, but that's also because, you know, the Fed has bought how many trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities for the past 14 years. Um, so that that funding, as everyone's been saying, you know, there's no money. They're trying to find money to, to go and, you know, buy these mortgages. Well, the biggest buyer just stepped out of the market and is uh, letting their portfolio roll off. So um, it absolutely sits at the Fed's Fed's feet. Yeah, George, go ahead. You know, um, the term Fed-induced coma, I'm hearing that term used, and it's a question you're looking at the front of the elephant or the back of the elephant. To me, the anomaly is not where rates are now. What's anomalous is where rates were before. I go back to the example I used of the beach ball being held below the surface of the water, being suppressed for so long. It was a Fed-induced bull market in assets of all types, including bonds. We had record liquidity, record animal spirits, record P-E ratios, record participation, record leverage. That's the anomaly. We're coming back to something that's normal now. Think about this for a second. People are recoiling in horror how much rates have gone up. And I think I suspect they're reacting more probably to the speed of the rate increase rather than the level. Think about if you came down from planet Mars and you weren't anchored on where prices were a few months ago. And someone said to you, okay, here's economic growth. Here's inflation, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to sell you a 10-year bond. And say, okay, well, inflation's eight, but they tell me it's going down. And the Fed hopes it's going to go down to two again. That's probably not going to happen. For all the reasons I could recite, whether it's scarce labor, scarce energy, end of deglobalization, et cetera, et cetera. Let's say inflation is 3Z, 4Z in the years to come instead of 2Zs. If someone said to you, okay, well, if that's the case, what's the level of interest rate that I'd be willing to buy a 10-year piece of paper at? You'd probably say, I don't know, 4 or 5%, something like that. So Fed-induced coma, no. We had a Fed-induced mania where they kept yeah, injecting. Yeah, but come on. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you a thousand percent, right? I, I mean, yeah, it's the beach ball held down. That's exactly right. But it's like the U.K. pension funds, right? I mean, if you have 30 years of artificially depressed interest rates and, you know, 12 years of ZERP, what you do if you're a pension fund who's got these long-term liabilities that keep going up as the interest rates go down, you get in, you start running yourself like a hedge fund. You get into interest rate swaps. You change your whole setup so that you become the, you know, the the victim, <laughs> the self-induced victim, the the suicide of a liquidity crisis, and and that's why I think it matters, right, when markets freeze up. It matters for two reasons. One, that's what kills a financial company. It's not the insolvency, it's the illiquidity. So I'm trying to figure out if there's a liquidity freeze in mortgage markets, because that's going to kill some people. And the other thing it's going to do is exactly what happened in the UK. It's going to force the Fed, like it forced the Bank of England, to reverse course and start buying this shit again. So, I I mean, I, I, I totally agree with where you're coming from, that the root cause of this is 30 years of 
artificially depressed interest rates. But the world we're in right now is that every financial services company in the world has built themselves around those depressed interest rates. And so now we got to figure out, you know, who that's going to kill and when that forces the Fed to reverse course. Yeah, Ben, what I'm a little bit puzzled by is I think you and I agree with 99%. So I'm not really sure what the disagreement is. Like, kind of judging by the tone of your initial remark, I'm kind of like, oh, sorry. I didn't. No, because you were saying, no, hold on, hold on. You were saying, well, wait a second, George, wait a second, George. We agree like on 99% of stuff. So where's the disagreement? I don't see a disagreement. No, I, I was reacting to you saying that, that it's not a sad coma and that that's not what we should be focusing on. And I'm sorry if no, it I'm came not, across I'm not saying as, we as focus on. I, I think what we need to focus on is how unrealistic and how, how absurd prior prices were. And, you know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like you know, go back to uh, when you get animal spirits going, go back to the NASDAQ bubble, you know, 2000. Well, if you jack prices to a ridiculous level where they're, they're not, it's a purely driven by liquidity. Once liquidity pump turns off, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's I know, I know. No, I'm, so, I, so, 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 Ben, we're really, I always like to listen to people to where we figure out what we agree on. Some people like to listen to people to attack them. And I, I think we're 99% in agreement here, Ben. Yeah, I, I, I do too, George. Okay, thank you. Yeah, George, I think what Ben's saying is like, it, it, you are definitely right. Like, this event is not creating the coma. It's the fact that you just spent 14 years creating a shit ton of clients, of, of heroin addicts, right? So they spent all this time pumping things up, and they got more and more, you know, uh, patients in there, and now they're yanking out the needle. And now, well, that, 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 yeah, yeah, that, that was my point. Yeah, so yeah, you, totally you can't agree, keep you, you can't you, you can't you can't keep administering steroids to the patient. You're going to kill them. Right. You're going to kill them that way. So. So, yeah. you know, so then the question is, well, can we gradually taper this guy and wean him off? Life is never so neat as that, you know, and that's no, just it's never going to happen. I mean, my world, I tell you right now, my, you know, everybody I talk to, they're like, this isn't going to last. There's no way. There's no way the Fed can get out of this business. So, I go, I go, you know, yeah, I, I go back to what I was saying before about Stein's law, that which can't go on won't. And that's we're 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 kind of at the Minsky moment for all this stuff right now. And I don't see any glide path smooth way out of this. No, I totally agree. A lot of really beautiful points here. I'm going to move this forward because it is pertinent to what we were just discussing. So I'm going to bring things back to this new normal, this topic of new normal. Home prices up nearly 46%, have mortgage rates up 50% year over year. But this time, it's different because of whose mortgage has deteriorated. The structure of the market today is pretty different from 2007 as displayed. So 90% now are fixed rate mortgages, whereas in 2007 to 2008, many of those loans were adjustable. Is the housing crash really only for, quote unquote, first time buyers? Joey, I'd really love your thoughts here. Yeah, I think um, the shift towards, or excuse me, the shift away from like adjustable rate mortgages post 2008 uh, was partially about breaking that cycle that arguably kicked off the Great Recession where you have rising rates. That means mortgages are less affordable for people on adjustable rate plans or balloon plans or all of these other, uh, I'm going to put like more complex financial mortgages. 
And that can then induce spending cuts that can then induce unemployment. More people become unemployed. They can't meet their mortgages. And now you're in a downward spiral that you can't really get out of. Um, and so I think that that first leg of the chain, you know, is maybe cut off here where you're saying, okay, rates are going up. There isn't this large population of people on adjustable rate mortgages that are going to take a lot of pain uh, because of that. That's something you're seeing in the UK, in Canada, in countries where uh, adjustable rate mortgages are much more common. It's a much bigger political issue. It's a much bigger uh, problem as people try to fight inflation. Um, and it's just a much bigger risk in the financial system. Um, but I wouldn't say that that like permanently removes that the possibility of that kind of spiral. You know, if you're saying we raise rates, it made uh, people on adjustable rate mortgages less able to afford things, and then that increased unemployment. Well, if you still just get to that increased unemployment step, you really didn't need the, the adjustable rate mortgage risk. You know, so if you're looking for this kind of downward spiral where um, home prices really crash, where you have this like forced selling, it's going to require increases unemployment. I think maybe that's less likely than it was in 2008. But I think if you look at even uh, the Fed's own forecast right now, if you look at the summary of economic projections, they say that the unemployment rate is expected to go up about a percentage over the next year. Uh, that would still put it you know, at historic lows, but that's a lot of people who are losing their jobs or not getting hired out of, uh, out of college or out of high school or not able to enter the labor force after they have a kid, all of which can cause big problems. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out is like we would kind of expect from how, you know, household formation was shifted throughout the pandemic, that you might have a little bit of a bump in demand for mortgages that is impacted by the supply. So you think if there's a new supply of first time home buyers, because if you look at things like uh, birth rates are picking up now as like the pandemic's ending, obviously when people have kids, they want to be able to buy a house. If mortgage rates are that high, it's going to affect more people if more people are trying to start a family. So like I said, uh, I think everyone here is in agreement that it's not 2008, that a lot of things have changed, but I still think, you know, like lots of people else on this panel, it's important to keep in mind, you know, the risks that started 2008 um, and how some of them can still be present. Beautiful. Thank you, Joey. So I do want to keep diving down this, this mention by George of a new normal. So last bear, I'm going to spin this next one to you, man. The New York Times has said the disappearance of starter homes is central to the American housing crisis. In parts of the country today, as you mentioned in the Northwest, there's hardly anything on the market for under 300 grand resembling the small no frills homes of the last 70 years. Will housing ever be affordable to starting home buyers again? We mentioned free liquidity over the last 20 years where it was anomalous, but part of that seemed to help home buyers partition, excuse me, partially. Would love your thoughts here on future outlooks for home buyers, the last bear. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think they're definitely, it, it would be kind of crazy to say that there's never going to be an opportunity for first time home buyers or, you know, there kind of has to be in, in the future. Just that's the way the market works is that there's, you know, periods of um, increasing prices and less affordability and then the reverse happens. So I'd expect that that happens, you know, at, at some point in the future. I think that 
housing demand, there's, there's sort of a impression that housing demand is like this fixed sort of figure based off population where, you know, there's, you know, a given number of people in the country and every single person needs a house. And so that's kind of a static number, but obviously in reality, the demand for housing is much more variable um, and depends on economic conditions. If things are going well, you might buy a second home or an investment property, or if things are not going well, you might move in with a roommate or, or do whatever. So that household formation can go both ways in the economic cycle. I think that, you know, there, there's also a sentiment aspect here where, like, everybody is sort of hoping that the, the housing market sort of crashes because they want to buy, which I think is indication that, you know, there's still probably a lot, a lot of ways to go. Like, I don't think people were super excited about housing in, in 2012, but that would have been the best time to buy. So I think you kind of have to let the spirits sort of work off over time. You have to let the market correct over time. But I think when, when no one's talking about housing a couple of years from now, that's probably a good time for first time buyers to, to take a look. I think that's some really good insight, especially for those, you know, wondering, Hey, what, what do we do during this? Do we hold off? Do we jump right in? What are we thinking? So I'm going to continue this train of thought here. Ben, Bank of America has said that the U.S. economy will soon start losing 175,000 jobs per month. Joey just mentioned that unemployment may also be necessary to tame inflation and is expected to go up by 1%. One aspect of people saying a housing crash will happen due to forced selling and people losing their jobs is also one aspect of that. How will forced unemployment affect the average person in their ability to buy or sell a home? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm, and I'm, not trying to be fl- <laughs> I'm not trying to be flipped with that. What, what I'm, I mean, a lot of us here were, you know, there, right, for the GFC. And, you know, I remember you know, subprime started to be a problem in 07. Uh, jobs are still good. Uh, you know, the, the, even going to Q4, and when I say subprime started to be a problem, it started to be a problem in markets. You had the, the two Bear Stearns and BS funds. They went out, what was that, in August of 07? Or was it, it was a little earlier. I think it was like June or July of 07. And it was June. It was June, right? So then in Q4, you know, you had the uh, house prices, auto prices rollover. I thought we were going into recession. You know, most people said it was a mid-cycle slowdown because unemployment hadn't or employment hadn't rolled over. So it's it's kind of similar to me in that respect, you know, where everyone wants to say, oh, it's just going to be a mid-cycle slowdown, and then it's not a mid-cycle slowdown. It's a, it's a recession. I think that's coming. My point, though, is that what broke the world in 08, you know, it wasn't the recession, right? What broke the world in 08 was that you had a $10 trillion asset class in, you know, non-agency RMBS that was structured so that a nationwide decline in home prices broke all those structures. And I, you know, other people on the call probably know more about this than I do, but I, I don't see that same sort of, you know, tender keg in markets existing today 
as existed going into the recession, the job losses, the real economic declines of 08. So I say I'm always looking at where is the where is that tender keg? Where is that thing that can blow up in market world? Not necessarily in real world, but where in market world? And I really do think we saw the first inklings of something blow up in the UK, and it's around the dollar being a wrecking ball, interest rates going up being a wrecking ball. So I'm, I'm really focused on where in market world does this rapid, dramatic, continuing increase in interest rates, where can that create a real liquidity crisis? And is there a big bag holder there that's systemically important? So, you know, when I say I don't know, I don't know what the real world effects are going to be, but I think that in market world, it's all going to depend on whether you've got that tender box, tender keg of a liquidity crisis and a big bag holder. So, so I, I, I'm sorry I can't be more help, but that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of where I am. So real quick, before we dive down that hole on the next tender keg, George, I see your hand. I'll kick that over to you after this next question here. Randy, we saw the, the mention that you did about the weekly dollar volume of percentage new mortgages that are arm mortgages. And since we were just on the topic of the differences between that and 2008, I'd love for you to break that down a little bit in relation to the conversation. Well, to be honest with you, I really don't know. I just find it fascinating that all of a sudden arms are coming into vogue like crazy. So I'll give you two examples. I have two clients in California, big, big credit unions, 95% of their loans this year in uh, residential real estate have been arms. So, and, and that's not as high in the Northeast where I have clients, but California usually leads, you know, all that kind of stress. But I don't know where that's going to lead, but I find it really fascinating. I find it important to, to, to watch because, you know, those arm borrowers. So here's something that very few people seem to understand, including the people who buy aren't securitized arms and all these banks that are issuing these arms or credit unions. The arm borrower rarely gets to the adjustable period. So if you have a five, seven, 10 year lockout in my, it, and just trust me, in all the t- time I've been doing this, 80, 90% of those loans, if not more, are going to have refied by that. And it could be rates down and it could be rates up. Rates keep going up, they panic, and they're like, okay, forget it. I'm just going to go ahead into a fixed rate. So I think that adds volatility to the market. It adds volatility to housing, in my opinion. Now, the other thing I want to say, too, is, which you started this conversation off with, is talking about unemployment and you know possible defaults, right? Well, there's a thing in my business called natural attrition. And basically what that means is that after a period of time, life hits you death, divorce, default, uh, dislocation, you get have to move, whatever the case may be, you've got to sell your house. So all these people who in the last several years that got new loans, yeah, they're, they're super happy. They got maybe even below two, you know, 3%, but let's say three to 4%, they're happy. They're going to say, well, I'm going to stay here forever because I got the most awesome rate. 
well, guess what? Life's going to hit them. They're going to be forced to sell at some point. That ramps up to about right into the three-year period. So once a loan's been around about three years, that's when you start to get this ramping up of natural attrition and forced selling. The other thing that came out today, so think about that. National Association of Home Builders came out, and I think it was today, that the home builders traffic of prospective buyers is the lowest since the great financial crisis, okay? Um, It's also the lowest before that since 1991. And we got here at the fastest pace in the history of this index. This index has been around since 1985. So you've got far less people interested. And as you get into a period where people either through natural attrition are forced to sell, or like you said, we do start to see some layoffs and we do start to see some people get in some trouble. That is a collision for disaster. And to me, that means home prices can only go one way, right? They're going to have to go lower. So now I'm going to move this back to the topic that everybody was kind of thirsting at the next tender keg. George, I saw you had your hand raised a few times there. Please take it away, George. What did you have to say there? Just real quick. I think Ben's right. You know, of course, there's going to be other bodies floating to the surface. But I think it's really a fool's errand or it's impossible to try to figure out who that's going to be. And I don't think it really matters. Um you know, I think it's a line from Dennis Gartman. There's never just one cockroach. I mean, think about it. Three weeks ago, a month ago, UK pension funds weren't a thing. Nobody was talking about that. Nobody could have forecast that. But what you do know is when a lot of leverage is taken on and bidding up assets and there's a margin call and the tide goes out, someone's going to get caught skinny dipping. So I don't think the identity, I think, I think the, the, the important insight is not who the, what, which, what whale is going to float to the surface. But the idea that, but rather the idea that a whale is going to float to the surface, that UK pension fund is, is not in isolation. There's never just one cockroach. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Hey, can I jump in there real quick too? Yeah, please. Yeah, real quick. So absolutely correct. And I, Ben's asking the right questions. We can't help but want to know who this person is. Who is, who's holding the bag? The problem is the person holding the bag doesn't even know they're holding the bag. Right. These systemic institutions, clearly, you know, I, I love the London whale episode with Jamie Dimon, who's supposed to be the smartest banker in the world, totally sign blinded by that situation and, you know, took massive losses on that. But that's just it. So the, what I know from Bear Stearns, I think it's a great example. And in a highly levered world, in a margin call world, which which uh, George just said is so perfect that. As far as I know, they were telling me the truth, but I had a client who lent money, a big bank client who was lending money to Bear Stearns. They pulled early sometime in 07 or mid 07, somewhere in, I don't know if it was June that quick or not, but they pulled a $500 million credit line. That's nothing. That's just peanuts. It was a smaller kind of institution that said, you know what? We're hearing some weird things. We're out. Well, that shouldn't have affected anything, but guess what? The street always finds that out. They always find it out. And they don't care what the reason is. They're getting the hell out too. So if you've never seen the movie Margin Call, which is like the greatest movie, Wall Street depiction of the lighting, the, you know, basically the ignition of the crisis, go watch that movie. You've got a highly levered firm that is tipping in and out of bankruptcy, and they, they did not know it. 
And once they did, they got the hell out and it didn't matter. They just got, and that's what, that's what's going to happen. I think at some point, somebody's going to see something. And you keep bringing up the, the London episode. That's such a good point. It's just like Bear Stearns, these two, not gargantuan uh, subprime funds. I mean, even at that point, I'm not sure people really still even understood what the subprime really meant. They go bankrupt and it's, it, nothing really came of it for not many more months after. So I think the canary in the coal mine is something just like what Ben's saying is pay attention to things like the UK pension crisis because they were forced to bail them out. And that, that's an indication that there is a lot of stress that nobody knows exists. And until it happens, we won't. So getting a lot of really good uh, feedback and comments and whatnot from this topic. So let's keep it rolling, guys. So last bear, I know you've written a lot about tender kegs. Do you have any thoughts here? Uh, maybe even if it's outside of the U.S. completely. No, I guess maybe I, I agree with what um, the last few speakers said for the most part. I think maybe to, to take sort of the devil's advocate or uh, opposite perspective, I think one of the big bag holders, so to speak, could have been the Fed in the sense that the Fed has been supplying the you know funding for a lot of the mortgages that are out there right now. But obviously, the Fed cannot blow up. They can you know the, it's impossible for them to sort of go under or be a liquid or whatever. So I don't know if that's just sort of off the top of my head, but it is something where you know who owns a ton of mortgage-backed securities? Well, the biggest owners, the Fed themselves, and that's um, you know they're sort of bulletproof in that sense. Um, but I do think that you know, the, as all of these sort of liabilities ultimately get sort of rolled up into sovereign debt uh, in, in a lot of cases when, you know, this deficit spending and, and whatnot is sort of all rolled into sovereign debt. Obviously, that's what you saw in the UK with the pension funds um, is is that it was UK sovereign debt that um, that depreciated rapidly and caused issues for, um, you know, for those pension funds. And I think that, you know, I've written a lot about uh, the sovereign debt markets in, in the US and elsewhere and how that's a potential source of risk today as the Fed continues to move liquidity, remove liquidity, I should say. So, um, you know, sovereign debt is a place to, to continue to, to keep your eye out and people particularly who own long-term, long-duration debt. So that, that's what I have on that. Before I move on, does anybody have any comments to what Last Bear just said? All right. So to continue on the housing strain a bit, double-digit rent increases create a strong incentive to build more multifamily union units, even as financing costs have risen per Jeffries. So permits for future home construction rose 1.4% to a rate of 1.564 million units in September, but the gain was all multi-unit products and projects. So Joey, is the American dream found in renting? <laughs> um, I think it's, it's funny because I'm uh, a big, obviously I'm in downtown DC, I'm a big urbanist guy. Uh, I'm an advocate for multifamily units. And I think we have a big shortage of multifamily rentals. Um, I think this is not the way that people usually want this to come about. I think this speaks to um, what I was saying very, very early in the call, where you're saying rising mortgage rates, the number one effect, first off, is making you know, single family housing less affordable for first time home buyers. And that tends to drive them into the rental market. Obviously, part of this is also just that we had a really big push in housing demand over the last few years, and it takes a while for multifamily units to get online. Um, but another thing I would say is that uh, if you were to look at sort of 
the dynamics of home building in the US over the last, say, 10 years or so. So like um, when the, the Great Recession was over, how did things shift? Part of that shift is that um, the places where home building was least allowed or most restricted, places like New York and California where homes are extremely expensive and they don't build a lot of them, saw big population outflows and the inflows were to Florida and Texas where you know single family home building is much less restricted. People who felt more confident in their jobs and their employment prospects felt like, okay, I'll move to Florida, buy a house there that I can actually afford and you know then be able to start a family. And a lot of these were lower income uh, workers. I think that feeling of like, internal confidence in the state of the economy and the state of your own personal um, the state of your own personal finances is deteriorating. Uh, and I think you're seeing a little bit of that when you look at home building in places like Texas and California. You know the big hits to single family homes are stronger there. You know people don't have that same level of confidence. So I um, wouldn't say it's dead, but I think like, over the last decade, we've seen it get a lot harder. Um, there's a great chart. I'm gonna go grab it as soon as I get off speaker from Kevin Erdman, who looked at like rising rents compared to the income of the zip code over the last say five or six years. It's basically a straight line where you're saying the, the lower income zip, zip codes saw the highest rent increases over the last few decades, which is not a trend that you saw before the great recession. I think speaks to you know, part of the housing crisis being that America doesn't build enough homes. So just to kind of keep going on in that train of thought, almost 40% of recent or current first-time home buyers didn't buy a home sooner because of the high cost of rent, according to an August Redfin survey. Nearly 80% of the survey's respondents to that question <clears throat> were millennials or Gen Z, Rent has also surged in recent CPI calculations. George, what can renters do here, if anything? What can renters do in what respect? You certainly don't want to buy a house. So what, what's the question? I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Please. So what, what can these renters do in terms of saving for housing with these rising rent prices? And the surveys that have found that Gen Z and millennials themselves are pretty specifically concerned about this this topic here, being able to save up for buying a home versus renting with these high renting prices, how can they accomplish something like that? So I would, uh, this is going to sound crazy, but, uh, I'd be very defensive. Um, I'd hold cash. Um, I've been defensive all year long. I think a phrase that I've used repeatedly is equities represent return free risk. So when people say I got money to work, I'm like, says who? Um, we were in the everything bull market. Now we're in the everything bear market. The tide of liquidity, tsunami of liquidity came in. Now it's going out. So people say, oh, well, you know, I hold cash. Inflation's whatever. I'm losing money. Well, you know, the, the, the short-term money, two-year notes, what, 460 today? Um, it's not a bad place to park some money. If you're a professional investor, and I don't advise this for individuals at home, but if you're a professional investor, I think there are a lot of opportunities to make money on the short side. 
But for the average investor, I would say hold cash, uh, keep your duration short. You're going to buy treasuries. Um, you need to conserve. I know it's not exciting, but what people need to keep in mind is the reason someone like Warren Buffett or Seth Klarman or Howard Marks, the reason they do well is they have liquidity. And so when the proverbial hits the fan, they're not getting margin called. They're in a position to put capital, to, to, to deploy capital. If you don't have cash, you're fully invested in your back foot. You're unable to take advantage of those, of those bargains. So you're actually making money. I know this is counterintuitive. You're actually making money, setting up the conditions for making money, putting yourself in a position to be able to make money by holding cash. That's what uh, great value investors do. And uh, I don't want to be completely... Um, uh, Debbie Downer, but I think we're in a very unusual period of time. I'm not a perma bear. I try to call them like I see them. And I just think, um, you know, is, uh, I think it was Leonard who once said, you know, there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. I mean, we're in kind of that window right now. And, you know, if this thing does escalate, and who knows if it will, but if it does escalate, if it does become disorderly, um, you know, correlations tend to go to one and everything goes down. And um, I think you got to be defensive. And I'll just finish with one line from the great Dennis Gartman. Keep it pretty simple. Do more of what's working and less of what's not working. Let's be real here. How many times have people bought stuff this year and made money? The only thing that's really been work has been energy. Everything else, for the most part, forget about it. Uh, and so I, I just think it's time to play defense. Thank you. Really good points there, as always, George. Thank you much. So I, I think this next topic, and I'm going to be opening this up to the whole panel after one directed question to Randy here. We've spoken a little bit at length about the Fed and the spreads between the Treasury yields. The Fed's aggressive monetary policy tightening has significantly weakened the housing market. Since March, actually, the Fed has lifted its benchmark policy rate from near zero to a range of three to three and a quarter percent. And the Fed funds rate is now expected to end the year in the mid four percent range with inflation yet to show signs of abating materially. Randy, can you speak about what this means for the larger market as a whole as the Fed continues to increase its rates? It's just going to continue to get uglier, right? I mean, it has to. There's going to be, you know, look, everything, so many investors in this world, big investors that matter, that are huge, and that are levered, they're borrowing short and they're investing long. And they're now inverted the curve. That's going to break somebody, okay? Somebody's trying to figure out how they're going to get out of this mess and it's just going to keep getting worse and the only thing i keep saying i've said this on twitter a gazillion times i want to i want to see their resolve tested with a couple limit down days that that's something that you know they're talking real big and they're all real brave but you start to see a couple limit down days on the s and i think the whole thing comes to an end and i, I think that it, it, it may be not even that but something's going to break and i think that's it and when they when we hit that point and they pause, they can say he's going to come out and say we're pausing. That doesn't mean we're cutting rates on our next move. No one will believe that. And so I think that's when you're going to see that yield curve come crashing back down. Amen, was, brother. Amen. Any, I, anything I, else I, to I add there, I, too, Ben? Yeah, I, I just have to get in on this because that's that is a hundred percent spot on. 
something is going to break. I mean, I, I mean, what I'm wondering is if that's in mortgage world, right? Because these spreads, they're only going to go wider because what the, the Fed is apparently hellbound to do is to take, you know, Fed funds north of four and a half and get to 5%. And on that path, something is going to break. And then it's going to be it, – and when I say something's going to break, they don't – the Fed doesn't care about breaking something in the real economy. That's what they're trying to do. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know why we kind of, you know, beat around the bush on this. The Fed is trying to break demand in the real economy. The problem is they're going to break something in market world. Because as Randy is saying, everybody, everybody has been borrowing short, lending long, some variation on that theme. And these rates are going to break somebody. And that's what makes the Fed pivot, turn, whatever you want to call it. It's not the real world. They want to break the real world. It's market world that's going to break, though, and that's what's going to bring them back. Yeah, totally agree. It, 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 just one thing to go look at. So I got this article in front of me today, uh, Wall Street Journal. Recession fears hit risky mortgage debt amid default concerns. I'm like, what? So I'm reading this article <laughs> and it's credit risk transfers. These are these are securities. Now, all the stuff I sell, I don't sell anything weird. It's it's all, you know, agency backed stuff. But I'm like, what the hell is a credit risk transfer? I mean, sounds like a CDS product to me, maybe. Essentially it seems like that's what it is. The market's only sixty billion. So a lot of people are gonna say, Oh gosh, you know, the mortgage market's four and a half trillion or whatever. Yeah, 60 billions, that's all it takes. So go read that article because that could be a little glimpse into like, okay, who's buying these C, uh, these CRT things? What the hell did it say? Asset managers, pensions, hedge funds. You know, people desperate for yield are buying this product that's unknown to me, but that's the kind of thing. That's where, that's where something's going to break. That's a market that's going to, that it could be that market that breaks. Who knows? But that's what Ben's saying is it, it, it just, you know, they're, and I don't think the Fed's trying to break it. I think they're trying to bend the hell out of it, but they're always going to break it. And they don't know what it is. They have no idea. That's why you had repos go nuts, you know, a couple of years ago. There's, that should have never happened. They had no idea that was going to happen. And it took them totally by surprise. And that's why we got repo line and a reverse repo line because it broke and they had to fix it. George, I saw your hand there. Do you have any other comments? Yeah, I was just going to say, I agree with everything Ben was saying and Randy was saying. I'll just put it another way. Is uh, Michael Kantrowitz is fond of saying, when people say nothing's broken, nothing's broken. He goes, that's exactly the point. Nothing's broken. They're going to keep going until they break something. I mean, the way they're, they're going to the, the way they're going to attempt to get inflation back on the inflation genie back on the bottle, specifically wage increases is by hitting corporate earnings. And the way you do that is by causing a recession. So, you know, that is the target of their affection. That's what they're aiming for. So I completely agree with what Ben and Randy. So George provided us some suggestions for first-time buyers here, and I think this will be the last question for our panel today. So George has provided suggestions for some first-time buyers, possibly people looking to refinance or those wondering about the equity in their housing. Are there any other suggestions from the panel, or is it a hold-on tight, keep capital as safe as possible top of market? 
Yeah, I'll I'll just keep it short. And I want to say like, um, you really got to look at your local housing market, especially if you're an owner occupier, which I think most people, you know, want to be want to own their own home. And it's going to be a very different dynamic, depending on where you live, what your uh, status is, how much you make the kind of house you're looking for. Um, so I would just say that, you know, as much as we like to think of the U.S. housing market as one monolithic entity, um, when it gets down to it, the house that you buy is going to be your house, and you got to uh, price things accordingly. So I don't, I don't want to give generalized advice. Any other comments? Please speak freely. All right, I'll jump in there. Um, I so I, I would say first off, if you're in your mom's basement, stay there, and let this <laughs> let the storm come through it's coming but i think based off all my clients my mostly my bank clients around the country the one they haven't been doing a lot of residential it's it's down dramatically it's sort of fallen into the hands of the credit unions who are more likely to do arm loans and so they're the ones doing all that but the banks have not been but what the banks have been doing all year long is commercial real estate lending and it's mostly multifamily. so to give you a quick example, I've got a friend, a big builder friend here in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the booming town for the last, you know, 10 years. He just told me, I think it was we talked a week or two ago. He said, sales have just literally stopped, just done. He goes, it hit a freaking wall. And that's how it always happens. It's I've seen this before. When it stops, it stops hard. And what he said, here's the process. He goes, okay, now I'm talking to my lenders, moving these from for sale to construction loan to I'm going to keep them and I'm going to rent them out. Okay. Now rents. Okay. He'll also say, if I'm more than 95% full in a facility, my rents are too low, you know, or I should, I apologize. Yeah. If it goes higher than that, then I got to raise my rents. Okay. So I got to keep it at, you know, 90 to 95%. Well, that has stopped. And what he said he's doing now is he's starting to get some clients going, Hey, I can, you know, I don't want to re-sign this lease at this level. I can go over there and get better amenities or, you know, same price, better amenities. And this is going all over Nashville and a lot of at least the southern cities where he works. So what he's starting to do now, instead of no more raising prices, he doesn't want to lower prices yet. So what he's doing is offering them a flat screen TV or a new refrigerator or something that they need for their apartment. Now they're starting to bargain. And again, that's the tip of the iceberg. Here we go. Next step, when all he's all these units that he hasn't finished yet, when those units come back on, he's probably going to have to lower those rents because he's got to get those people in there. And if all my banks around the country have been doing nothing but multifamily for the whole year, I think there is a ton of product that's getting rentable product that's getting ready to come on the market. And hopefully it's going to become a renter's market because, you know. I'm on like Facebook, my, my neighborhood Facebook for the whole area. And I see these poor souls that are like, you know, somebody bought my apartment building and they're raised immediately raising my rent $200. I can't afford it. I don't know where to go. I see that story over and over again. And I hate it. I think that's coming to an end. So I, I, I think what you just said, Nicholas, is just like, hold on. I think things are going to get better for you. Great points. Um, as always, Randy, thank you very much. So now here toward the end of our space here, I want to give everybody on the panel another chance just to get in some closing thoughts. And 
please, please plug anything you're working on, anything you got going out, anything you think everybody listening here should be aware of or tune into. So I'm just going to work my way right down the panel here from start to finish. Closing thoughts on the discussion so far. And please, please, please plug anything you're working on you want some eyes on. So we'll start with Ben here. Any closing thoughts? Plug away, man. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yeah, so I'm Epsilon Theory. That's Twitter. That's the website. Uh, I think we've done some good work on the UK pension funds and really explaining what's going on there and where you need to look next. So that's been our, our push on the website and, uh, and on Twitter. We put all that stuff outside the paywall, so, uh, so check it out. You know, the, the last comments I'll make are that the only thing harder to break than inflationary expectations are deflationary expectations. And we are at that tipping point, like Randy was saying, and Nick was saying, so the Fed is trying to break inflationary expectations. And they're doing it. <laughs> We're about to start def this deflationary expectation spiral. And that, that's just really hard to stop. Right, so I think we're jumping from the frying pan into the fire, and along the way, we're going to have something big and bad break in market world. So, yeah, stay in the basement if that's where you are now. If you got a place now, you just ride it through, and uh, <laughs> see you on the other side. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank you, Ben, and and everybody listening. From the Frying Pan into the Fire, the new album by Ben Hunt, out 2023. <laughs> Thanks a bunch, Ben. All right, Last Bear, any closing thoughts? Anything you want to plug, man? Um, yeah, I think I would echo what everyone else is saying, which is basically just chill out. Like, it's, you know, patience is, is a virtue um, in, in any sort of market, but especially one when there's a high degree of uncertainty, um, like, like what we have today. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of get caught up in the day to day and, um, you know, have this whole, all, all the stuff sort of come off as entertainment or the feeling that, you know, you, you got to do something tomorrow with your money, but just, it's okay just to relax and take a walk and, and chill out for a little bit. And hopefully, you know, when, the, when, when nobody's talking about housing, maybe a couple of years from now, maybe it's a good time to, to jump in. So I'll leave it at that. If you, uh, enjoyed anything that I've said here, please follow me on twitter and uh, follow my sub stack the last bear standing uh thanks guys thanks for having me thanks as always last bear man love having you here you're always a really good addition to these joey any final thoughts on the topic so far anything you got to plug man uh no big final thoughts i just want to say thank you for having me on and thank you to all the other panelists for your your great insight i think we had uh, a really good discussion going there uh throughout a lot of it and it's always great to be on you know, these big discussions where you can go back and forth and, and um, find places people agree and disagree. I uh, obviously have my Twitter. I write a newsletter on Substack as well. I'm hoping to get a piece out on supply chain data uh, either tonight or tomorrow morning, if that's something you're interested in. Uh, but don't, don't hold me to that deadline. Oh, you're held to it now. You just said it in front of 3,000 oh, no. people, man. There's no way out. All right, George Noble, my man, any closing thoughts? Anything you got working on coming out? Yeah, I mean, listen, this, we live in historic times. Nobody really knows. I really enjoy this room. Appreciate everybody here trying to pool our best thoughts together. We're living through historic times. We're going through a regime change. I think the next 10 years are going to look nothing like the last 10 years. 
nobody knows the future. I'm very cautious. I'm bearish. I, uh, as JP Morgan, I think famously, uh, once said, um, when asked by a friend who was worried about, uh, the market, a friend asked him, what should I do? He said, sell down to your sleeping point. That is if you're worried and you think you've got too much exposure on the market, whether it's real estate or, um, equities or whatever, there's no harm taking exposure off the table. Um, I think we're in an untenable situation. I go back to Stein's law, that which can't go on won't. All these asset prices have been pumped up by the most irresponsible monetary policy in history, and that experiment has ended. And so now we're engaging in price discovery, and we'll see where the chips fall. Last thing I'll say, um, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm not here to shill uh, my fun, but I did launch an ETF uh, three weeks ago designed exactly for this type of environment. It's an absolute return ETF. It does not depend on the market going up. It's a long, short fund. It can be long, it can be short. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to take advantage of the uh, shorts as well as long. So, uh, it's ticker symbols NOPE. Uh, and then we have a website. You can check it out if you're interested. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great room. And George, real quick, could you repeat the name of that ETF and the symbol again? Yeah, it's Noble Absolute Return ETF. Noble Absolute Return Fund, ticker symbol N-O-P-E, Nancy Orange Paul Edward. It's, it's an actively managed ETF. It's one of the very few that's out there. It's basically elevator pitch. It's basically a hedge fund in an ETF wrapper. Totally liquid, totally transparent, much reduced fees compared to a hedge fund and uh, much more favorable tax treatment. So take, check it out. Beautiful. Thank you much, George, and congratulations on that launch, man. Randy, any final thoughts here, my man? Anything you got to plug? Uh, no, I've got absolutely nothing to plug. I got nothing to sell. Um, well, your presence itself will... is pluggable, Randy. Well, you're sweet. Thank you. Um, you know, I'll just say that and everybody's going to hate me saying this probably, and it, it isn't meant to be arrogant, but I was brought up in this industry in a very, very unique way. Uh, working for Bloomberg at the time that I did, being exposed to the, what I was exposed to while I was there. And then what I've done in my career is try to teach people what I learned from all that, including Bloomberg analysis and things like that. Only thing I could say is, you know, on my Twitter account, I try to educate. Um, I try to, I, I learn everybody that's on here. I follow, they're so amazing. And I learned so much from them. But I will say, I can't say as much as I'd like because I have a securities license. So when the day comes and I retire, I'm going to release the house. And that's going to be super, super fun. That's, and I'll be here playing it. who let the dogs out, Randy. I'll be looking for that, <laughs> my man. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, everybody. Thanks again to every panelist up here for coming. If you're not following these folks, please do. You're missing out on a lot of information and education by not doing so. There is a possibility we'll be back next week for another Unusual Whales pod on GDP. Eyeballing next Thursday, so just stay tuned on the Unusual Whales Twitter page for the announcement of that space. For now, if you came in late, if you feel like you missed anything, you didn't miss anything, we're going to have this pushed out for permanent reference on the Unusual Whales YouTube, Apple Pod, and Spotify, so you won't miss anything you may have missed coming in late today. Until then, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again, everybody up here. Everybody here is a must follow, and we will catch you all again next week. Thanks again for coming, everybody. Thanks, guys.
That was awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on.